Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open House podcast. I am smiling because today I have a friend here with me. I'm here with Charlotte Jackson. I am so happy to have her here. And I've actually known Charlotte probably longer than I've known most of my friends. And even though we haven't had an incredibly consistent relationship over the last decade and a half, she has been there for me in some of my darkest moments, particularly in my breakup and also around my health anxiety. So she's a very, very special person to me. I personally have been mesmerized by her story. I've got goosebumps all over me. I don't know if you can see it. I'm mesmerized by her resilience, her strength and what she's gone through and how she has ultimately moved through this on her own, which is one of the hardest things that people really could ever have to do. Today, Charlotte's going to be sharing her experience as a survival guide for others. And we're going to be talking about how Charlotte came from a traditional, in inverted commas, upbringing. You know, we went to school in Guildford. Surrey together. And now here she is talking to us today as someone who has overcome a four-year crystal meth addiction and has achieved sobriety without rehab alone on the other side of the world. And as someone who cries three times a week in Mexico because I'm lonely, I'm homesick and I'm sad, that is an astounding story that she's going to share with us. So we're going to be talking all things self-discovery and self-love, which isn't one of my favorite words. So I think that's going to be an interesting part of the discussion. And also a dollop or sprinkle, should I say, of a spiritual awakening. We're going to be talking about how addiction isn't what you think it is and how Charlotte has really learned to come home to herself and find and meet herself as part of this journey. So first of all, Charlotte, hi. I'm so happy to have you here. It feels like I'm going for coffee with a friend. I'm so excited to catch up and yeah, excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So before we recorded, you told me there was some synchronicity that you had experienced before we'd spoken. Please tell me because I'm a big fan of believing that every single synchronicity is pointing us in the right direction. You're always on the right path, even when you are in the darkest moments of pain. What was this synchronicity? Okay, so... I realized, because obviously we'd booked in to record together, that when I was in Australia, just before I got clean, it was either just before I got clean or just after. So in that crucial period of life, for some reason, I don't know how, whether it was via Instagram or something else, your podcast had popped up. And it must have been, honestly, you had just started recording it. It was when you were recording with Helen, who we also yes. went to school with. <laughs> and you were, you had just started. And I remember driving down this road in Melbourne, and I was listening to you and her talking. And I honestly cannot remember what you were talking about. But I just remember having this feeling of you two and your voice and just like knowing the two of you as if you were saying, come on, Charlotte, you got this. Like we're waiting for you on the other side. And I just thought, how fucking cool is it that I am now sitting here clean talking to you about overcoming addiction? And I just thought that was a really cool synchronicity. So what was the date that you started your podcast? Can you remember? Honestly, and anyone that listens to this knows anything to do with numbers, <laughs> dates or years. I, I honestly have no idea. I, I actually can't tell you how bad is that? I have no idea. It's like it's maybe okay. three, <laughs> like three years ago. Would that be right? Yeah, so I got clean September 9th, 2020. So it would have been, it must have been around there. So it's almost three years to the date. Wow. This. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And I mean, congratulations on three, <laughs> three years. Like I can't wait to get into it. That is truly just phenomenal. But what I also want to say that I'm not sure if Charlotte has forgotten about is that I actually invited Charlotte on the podcast a while ago, like a really long time ago, like maybe a year and a half ago. And Charlotte wasn't at the right time on her journey. And so just for everyone that's listening that feels like 
the one that got away, that girl, that guy, that job, that job interview, that friend, and you feel like you only have one shot at something. I think that this is also just a message for everyone that like, the time will come when the time will come. And sometimes you will miss it the first time round because it wasn't meant to be that first time round. Do you remember mm. inviting you on the podcast the first time round? A hundred percent. I remember. And when I think of where I was at in my journey then compared to where I'm at now, if I had shared then and that had kind of gone live for whatever reason, I'm such a different person. I think it would actually have been a disservice to the people who are listening because I was so much less balanced. I was pretty much still going through addiction, even though I wasn't addicted to drugs. I was still very much finding myself. I just come home. My nervous system was chaotic. You know, I was just about to dive headfirst deep into Christianity. I think you'll remember my little eight months, nine months stint into that. (laughs) So it just would not have been the right timing at all. And I've thought about that and reflected on that too. And thought, again, it's like so beautiful that we're coming together now because I just feel as though our paths are so much more aligned and I'm just in so much better of a space to actually be able to kind of speak and share my story with everyone. Oh, that is so special because I also love how you've referenced there, like my nervous system is in a better state now. And, you know, a year and a half, similarly, I wouldn't have understood the connections between addiction, nervous system dysregulation, all of Gabor Mate's work on childhood trauma and addiction. So you're right. We probably would have just shared your story, which in itself would have been powerful, 100%. But actually today, a year and a half later, we are such better, well-rounded, like more calm individuals. Let's start there. You know, what were you like as a child? Do you think that there was like any signs or now you look back with what you know, do you think you could look to little Charlotte and say, hey, you've gone through a lot here and there's going to be a crazy journey ahead of you, but it's going to be okay. Do you feel like there were any signs that you might have gone on this journey? I know it's a bit of an abstract question, really. No, I love it. When I think back to childhood, I was very much the sensible one. So I was always the child, and I I know that you've touched on this in your own episodes as well, of where the parent kind of treats the child like an adult. So you're sort of the person they confide in. They talk to you about their own problems, what's going on. I was the sensible one. I could be relied on. Charlotte, oh, you're so good. Like, you're so sensible. You're so easy. That's who I was as a kid. I'm talking kind of, you know, under the age of 10. I had a very unstable childhood in that I moved countries a lot. And it was a lot of back and forth every two years, Hong Kong, England, Hong Kong, England. Then my dad moved to Saudi Arabia and it was just like constant moving around. I think I went to six different schools before the age of 11. I was always the new person who didn't fit in. And funnily enough, I find that quite interesting because I kind of continued that pattern into adulthood where I went to Scotland for university where I didn't fit in. And then I went to Australia where I didn't fit in. And it was like, I was trying to prove to myself, yeah, I never fit in anywhere. Like I'm always the outsider who doesn't belong, which massively contributed to the reason I became a drug addict. So yeah, it's interesting. The childhood played a part, but I don't think looking in on that, you would think, oh, that person's going to become a drug addict by any means. It was a shock to everyone, I think. Yeah, it was. I remember when I heard, I was definitely shocked as well. You know, we went to the same very pushy all girls female school that was amazing and um, traumatizing at the same time. And then I went to university and I just lost the fucking plot. The drugs, I was unfaithful to my boyfriend. Everything went downhill very, very quickly. Like all the whirlwind just happened so quickly. And I sometimes I think that eldest daughter really holds that like heavy responsibility until one day we're like, fuck it. Like, fuck it. I'm going to just do whatever the fuck I want. And I think that another really interesting part of like this first part of the episode is sharing that you didn't grow up around drugs or alcohol. Like we were very much at school and, and doing our things. And we came from these, in inverted commas, normal families. So I guess I'd love to know, like as a teenager, you know, when people start to go off the rails, so to speak. Did you have that experience? Did you start taking like drugs and alcohol? Like how was your relationship with those substances when you first came into contact with them? So I'd say when I first started drinking, I was quite young, probably. I think I was around the age of 13 or 14, but I didn't get drunk for the first time until I was about 15 or 16. And I was quite sensible with it. I think when I first started drinking, um, can't relate drug wise. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was very sensible at the start. And then once I, once I discovered getting drunk, 
then that was the next level. And it was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And then it was just blackout drunk all the time, particularly once I got to university every weekend after that. I think from the age of 15 to 30, I did not have one weekend where I hadn't got blackout drunk. That's 15 years of drinking. That's crazy to me. That is crazy. Crazy, But we'll get onto that. (laughs) And then in terms of drugs, I think... I possibly might have smoked a joint and that was the extent of it. I was just, I was actually anti-drugs. I wasn't even, oh, you know, some people do them. I was like, that is disgusting. Who would do that? Who would touch that? Why wouldn't they just stop? I almost feel like it was my karma that I became a drug addict because I was so anti and just disgusted by addiction and just had no concept or understanding of it. That it's almost quite amusing and a weird universal joke that that that's kind of what happened to me. Because now I'm just like, okay, well, I've had this complete paradigm shift and it is absolutely not what I thought it was. I did not touch drugs until the age of 29. Yeah, that's crazy how it wasn't like you discovered them at 14 and then the rest was history. And I also think it's so interesting how you're sharing that, you know, you were blackout drunk every weekend for an insanely huge portion of your life. And the thing is, is that I remember, you know, you were always a little older than me at school. And I remember, so you went to university before me, I was like, probably still at school. And I just remember thinking like, Charlotte's so cool. Like, she's so pretty. Like all the guys always love Charlotte. And the truth is, is that at that point, 15 years ago, or again, numbers so bad, whenever we were at school, whatever decade that was in, you know, we were never talking about the reality of these things where we weren't being able to say to each other, hey, it's actually not normal that we get blackout drunk or, hey, it's actually not normal that, you know, you did that with a guy or with a girl. And the next day you felt horrendously upset because you were too drunk or you said no, and that was disrespected. So I'm so happy that we're here having this conversation today. And I'd love to know how you first came into contact with crystal meth, because some people listening must be like, whoa, like how did that happen? Would you say that it started out like fun and then things got dark? Or do you think it started out like you were in the darkness and then you found it and then things got darker? I'd say I was in the darkness. I had just gone through a breakup. So similar to you as well, I always find that you and I have so many reflections when we talk about things that we've gone through. But I had been someone that had been in back-to-back relationships from the age of 15 did not know how to be alone, was always in a relationship. As soon as one ended, jumped into the next one. I think on reflection, 100%, that's a subconscious thing that is, if I'm in a relationship, that means I'm lovable. So you think that if someone else loves me, that means I'm good enough, which is the opposite of how you are good enough, right? But that's just what we do when we're kind of that age, I suppose, and if we don't know any better. And so ended this engagement, I would have been with my fiance about five years and we broke up. I was on the other side of the world in Australia from friends and family, and I just didn't know who I was. I was honestly so lost. And so straight away, it was like into the binge drinking, even more so than normal. That's, that's I think, when you know that you use something as a bit of a crutch because obviously I was getting drunk every weekend, but then through the breakup, it was like, oh, I'll have some during the week as well. Oh, I'm drinking by myself. You know, there's warning signs that drug addiction's on its way because alcohol obviously is a drug as well. But I, I just remember just going through this time where I just didn't really know where I was. I was so lost. Everything was upside down, you know, because people talk about breakups, but they don't talk about the logistics of a breakup your pets, the house, your belongings, like everything is different. The car, suddenly you don't have a car and, you know, you're having to drive an hour to work instead of 20 minutes or it's an hour on public transport instead of 20 minutes in the car. All these little things adding up. You're living with a stranger instead of your partner. Just so many changes at once. And then it was at this time that I rebounded into a relationship with someone else. So I'd only been broken up from my fiance. Let's just put this into perspective. My fiance who I'd been with for five years, I jumped into the next relationship within one month of us moving out from each other. Yeah. So I was not in the headspace of, you know, I was not in a great space. And the person that I jumped into a relationship with He was, I would say, looking back now, highly functioning cocaine addict. Mm. And because I had no concept of drugs and hadn't taken drugs before, I didn't realize that what he was doing was weird. I kind of just thought, oh, that's how people who take drugs party. And the way that he was using drugs was how I used alcohol. To me, it didn't seem weird that you would go that far with it. At first, obviously, I was you know, all the emotions, so angry, that's disgusting. I don't want you to do it, blah, blah, blah. But then also I'm experiencing, I'm so lonely. I hate myself. Who am I? I'm getting depressed. I'm grieving a relationship. 
So eventually, I guess I just get worn down. And I think that's something I'd always done in past relationships too, where it was kind of, if I can mold myself into being the person that person wants me to be, then they'll love me. So part of that was, you know, oh, if I, obviously this is all subconscious, but if I use drugs, that person will accept me. And then I'll, I'll finally belong somewhere because that's the whole thing. Like I never belong anywhere. So if I take the drugs, I'll be part of that. So for a while, it was quite fun, obviously, you know, we're going out, having fun, just enjoying ourselves, partying. It's like MDMA, Coke, just standard party drugs. And then because of the headspace that I was in and also the relationship I was in with someone just, that just had no emotional availability at all, which I obviously didn't have either. <laughs> so it was a great match. <laughs> we just ended up just in this really kind of toxic dynamic. And within a year... I was going out on my own and meeting people out without him just when I was high. And then it was, you know, hanging out with them, like after the club shots, where do you go? And da, 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 da. And one thing leads to another, to another, to another. And before you know it, you start hanging out in circles with people who are smoking crystal meth. And it's actually very common in Australia. They call it ice over there. But when you're in those circles, again, it's like normal. You just like try it. So I was, yeah, on a mission, I think as well. And I just didn't care. I was like, I'll try anything. I'll do anything. I don't care. I even took heroin at one point. Like I just did not care. I was just like, I'll do whatever. And crystal meth was the one that really stuck. This is like a bit off topic, but what was heroin like? <laughs> so for me and my personality, I I really don't enjoy those kind of drugs. And that's why I find it fascinating that people say, oh, you know, once you try a drug, you're addicted to it. And it's just actually bullshit. Mm. Like I tried heroin. I think I tried it three times. And I remember thinking, why am I doing this? This is actually fucking shit. Like I really don't enjoy it. And I just like didn't do it. It's very mellow, like chills you out. I mean, it's what essentially they give you in hospital. Mm. It's the same as morphine. So it's a very mellow high. Whereas for me, I like the amphetamines that were like, go, go, go. I can get so much done because that was kind of what my personality was like back then as well. So it kind of went well with me. That sort of, you know, just doing everything at 100 miles an hour all the time. Oh, there's so many things I want to say here. The first one is, I think it's so interesting how you touched on like belonging and connection, because ultimately as human beings, that's all we need. That is how we have a healthy nervous system. And that's how so many people start doing drugs. I mean, I did so many drugs at university and it was because I was in the cool crowd with the cool girls and we all took drugs together. Like that, that gives me actual like cringe shivers in my body saying the cool girls doing drugs. Like I'm literally like, oh my God poor baby, poor baby Lulu at that point. But I also just want to say this whole podcast is based on no shame, no judgment whatsoever. But I've been there. Like I remember this guy once just gave me a key at a party. I sniffed it and he just said, you do realize you didn't even ask me what that was. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a really valid point. Like, wow. Sometimes you're in this state of mind where it's just like, you know, whatever. You're not even thinking. It becomes a lifestyle. And another thing that I'm so grateful that we're talking about is like you were in an active addiction, but you were living life. And this is one of the reasons that I'm so excited we're sharing this today because there is addiction all around us. We are all addicted to something, but there is still this belief that you're only an addict if you're in a doorway in the street, sleeping in a sleeping bag and you're homeless and you're using a needle. So at what point did it come to you that you were like, oh, I'm an addict? Because I think that there's this belief that if you physically, you, you know, you physically cannot function, like you physically can't leave the house, you physically can't do anything. You're just like monging out all day, all night, all weekend. And like, that's not the reality of the vast majority of addiction. So tell me, was there a point that you realized like, holy fuck, I'm an addict. I am addicted to crystal meth. So yeah, it's so interesting that you say that. And I've reflected on that so many times because that was very eye-opening for me because that was what I thought addiction was as well. I think for me, my entire life, since I was the age of six, I have been an avid journaler. And I would say that journaling actually played a huge part in just saving me from addiction. And I journaled a lot throughout the addiction. I actually stopped journaling for a while. And when I started taking drugs, the journaling came back, which is really interesting because I think we always innately know what we need to do in order to get through something. And so I was journaling away and I used to reflect on that all the time. And I remember asking myself the question, at what point did I go from partying, having fun on weekends, even with the meth, smoking it on weekends, but still going to work and doing all these things to sitting in my apartment by myself, getting high 
Like, how did I get from A to B and why? And once I reflected on that, I realized it was always loneliness. It was when something had happened where I felt usually rejected by someone or something else. So one of the things was I lost my job and that definitely triggered me down this downward spiral of I'm just so useless because if I lose my job, if I get fired, I'm not good enough, you know, all these things. And then the guy that I was seeing again, rejection, and it all happened all at once. And I think it was at that point when I woke up in the morning and would smoke when I woke up. And then I thought, that's not okay. I mean, it wasn't okay the whole time, but I think those were the two moments when I really realized, number one, you're using by yourself. It's not fun anymore. Why are you doing it? And number two, you're using as soon as you wake up. Again, why do you need that as soon as you wake up? It's like, why do you pick up your mobile phone and scroll on Instagram as soon as you wake up? Like, what is it in your brain that's making you do that? And it's really interesting once you start to look into those patterns, I think. That is so interesting because I feel like what you said earlier in the episode was that you, you know, you use the term black sheep. That directly, you know, relates to being on the outside. And then that directly ties into the rejection and the loneliness. And I can relate to that so much. Like I've had a huge amount of loneliness over my life. And I've always felt like the black sheep in my family unit. And it just really drives you, I think, to really do everything to fit in. But it's not always possible to do that. And I think that when you get rejected, it brings back all of those childhood beliefs that kind of formed when you did feel like the black sheep in the family or in childhood. So you feel those reactions, as you know, more than anyone viscerally in your body. You know, people think rejection is just something that we experience in our mind, but it is a full physiological experience. Our our biology thinks we're going to die when we're rejected. So it's a very uncomfortable place. And I think that tie and that connection is so important and really interesting that you kind of took it on that spectrum of when did this stop being fun anymore and like when did it just become almost more of an obligation and I of course can't relate to your story but I I smoked my whole 20s a lot like 20 cigarettes a day which I've actually never really spoken about on here but got to the point that I would wake up in the morning I would get up at 6am I would put my gym clothes on I was on my way to the gym and I'd have a cigarette and I'd have an espresso before leaving the house every fucking morning before going to get on a cycling bike. And there was just one day I woke up and I realized I don't want to do this, but I have to. I have to do this. My body needs this. I can't go from bed to wardrobe to spinning studio without the espresso and without the cigarette. It became such a part of my neural wiring. So I think that's interesting as well. I'd love to know, you know, what was the turning point for you? Like how bad did things get, would you say? So it's interesting. But when I first started taking drugs, obviously I was working full time. Then I lost my job and that ironically actually pushed me into starting my own business. So when I was a drug addict, I started my own company. And at one point I had 11 people working for me. It was a cleaning business that I basically built up from nothing and found this little niche in the market. And it was pretty crazy. And I remember at one point I was sitting at home getting high making money whilst everyone else was out working. And I just thought, this is wild because I would never have done this if I wasn't a drug addict. It was really weird. So that lasted for about two years. And I think it was around the time I moved out of my own apartment and I started bouncing house to house. And that's when things really started getting unstable. I was with a partner and he never wanted to settle down. It was actually craziness. Now I think about it. We would move my entire apartment's belongings, the entire apartment, moving boxes and all sofas, my cat, everything. We would move it every two weeks into an Airbnb. What? Every two weeks, Louise. Yeah. So I was just lo- like, I was losing it and I couldn't keep up with business, being a drug addict, moving all the time and my crazy relationship. So everything started to fall apart around this time. Him and I ended up getting engaged again, crazy drug situation that ended because he actually physically assaulted me and he ended up in prison. And then our relationship obviously ended. Even if I wanted to go back, I couldn't have because he was in prison. So that was kind of the beginning of the the demise, I suppose you could say. So then I moved in with different people and I was just bouncing around. I kind of slowly, slowly, slowly lost business because I just couldn't keep up with it. I lost my driving license, so I couldn't 
I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't drive to work. I basically just became just living in random people's houses, bouncing sofa to sofa. So I'd say I was probably homeless at some points. But this is when you really trust in something so much greater than you. Because in those two years, I only spent two weeks living in my car. There was always a roof over my head. And I don't know how that happened other than thank you, someone. It was just people would come into my life and just offer me somewhere to stay. It was actually crazy how often it happened. It was just constant. So I was always looked after, even though I was in this crazy situation. But the final and the rock bottom was I ended up in a crack den with that ex who'd gone to prison. So he had got out of prison and then we moved into this house that he was already, he was already living in there. And I was again, homeless. And I said, you owe me. (laughs) I was like, I need somewhere to stay. I have nowhere to go. And I was like, "I, I need to be here, even though obviously, you know, that's not where you would wish to go, but I had no options at this point. And that's, that's when I moved in there. And that was intense. That's like, I'm walking out into the living room in the morning. There's people shooting up on the sofa. There's people shooting up in the kitchen. It's just like what you imagine that situation to be like, you go in the bathroom and there's like blood splats up the wall. It was fucking disgusting. It was just like, it was a hole. Yeah, it was bad. And that's where I ended up. That was when the turning point sort of started to happen. I wasn't there for too long. And at this time when I was there, one of my friends actually passed away. And this was, as you spoke about before, how I had a spiritual awakening. And that's why we're kind of going to touch a little bit on that as well. I won't get too into it. Don't want to scare anyone. (laughs) Yeah. So he, he passed away and he was, he was a bit of a party boy, but he was not smoking crystal meth. And he was 100% just my biggest encourager, supporter, loved me so much, always listened to me. And that's one thing that I found as an addict is that no one will listen to you because you don't know, but you do. I'm saying that that's the the sort of stereotype. You can't trust an addict. They don't know what they're talking about because they're high. You basically get treated as if you're a child who doesn't know anything. It's really disempowering because you're trying to say to people, this is what I need. And they're like, no, but you don't know because you're an addict. And actually this is what you need. And I'm like, I'm fucking telling you, like, I know what I need, but no one will listen. And I remember saying to him before he passed away, I said, I said, all I need is a safe space to to be in like an apartment or a house or whatever it is. And to not have to worry about money for like two months. That's all I need just to just be able to sort my shit out and I will get clean. I know it. And he was like, okay. He's like, well, how can we make that happen? Come see me. Let's put our heads together. We'll work it out. And then he died. And Mm. I, yeah, it was, and it was a shock because he, you know, he's 38. He had a heart attack. It was very unexpected. After this point, I just, I started to get all these really weird things where it was synchronicities but synchronicities that you can't really explain. And they were really freaking me out because I was obviously using drugs and I was thinking, am I losing my mind? That's what I kept asking myself. Am I actually going crazy? And at one point we went into lockdown in Melbourne. This was the beginning of everything. We went into lockdown and I'm still living in this crack den. MJ's just died. And he did have his funeral before we went into lockdown. I went out for a walk and I walked past the church where he'd had his funeral and I was just just like so lost. And I just didn't know who to talk to. And I'm just like, MJ, I miss you so much. I don't know what the fuck to do. I was like crying, missing him, everything. And then I just felt like there's no way out. That's how I was feeling at the time. And I walked back to the house I was staying in and I walked into this petrol station on the way home. And I just remember (laughs) seeing this figure. This makes me sound a bit crazy, but I was 100% I still say every day, I'm like, this is actually genuinely what happened. This person was standing like a meter and a half away from me, looked up and it was him. Like it wasn't just someone that looked like him. It was literally him in front of me. The only difference was he didn't have a freckle on the end of his nose, but everything else was, it was him. And I what, was what, like terrified. A, like a vision or like an actual person? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but it was him. And I just freaked out, ran back to the house. And I was like, no, nah. I'm like, that is, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. I'm going, I'm having a psychosis. I was like, that is too. But then I thought if I was having a psychosis, would I think I was having one? So I was just like, <laughs> I thought there's just no way, but I just ran back to the house and I started like scrolling through on YouTube because I was so freaked out and I just was trying to kind of just distract myself from it. And I came across this random video out of nowhere of the of Oprah Winfrey interviewing the Olsen twins. And one of the Olsen twins said, yeah, I used to have a freckle here, but it's it's gone. And what? I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. 
So I throw my phone across the room because I'm freaking out. That's fucking really strange. And then my ex walks into the room again. This is no word of a lie. Turns on his phone, starts playing a song. And it's the song from MJ's funeral, which is I Have Nothing. So Whitney Houston song. I I didn't actually know that song very well until his funeral. And the lyrics of it are like, "I, I have nothing if I don't have you. And I remember just like freaking out. And I, and it, to me, it felt like MJ, right? Literally speaking to me from the other side saying, I am not fucking leaving you here. Like I have nothing if I don't have you, like we're going. And, and I just felt this like feeling of like, he is here, but I was freaking out because I was on drugs and I just thought I can't deal with this. And I, I think I actually just ended up going to sleep, woke up the next day, had an idea come into my head that I could have had this idea a hundred times the entire time I was an addict, but I never, never thought of it. Go to a homeless shelter. So I go to a homeless shelter and I just say to them like straight up, I'm a drug addict. i I don't want this to be my life anymore, but I have nowhere to go. I said, I'm living with this partner or ex-partner. He's emotionally and psychologically and physically sometimes abusive. And I was just like, I, I have nowhere else to go. And I feel very stuck. And they said, don't worry. That's fine. We, we help people like you and we, like we're here to help. They said, but unfortunately, we can't put you into a shelter because of COVID. We have to put you in a four-star hotel. I was again like, I'm sorry. Why? You and and this is when I I really do believe in just the power of the universe and how exactly what you were saying at the very beginning of this podcast, timing is everything. Because if something if something happens for us, it just won't happen. This was the perfect timing. So I go and get put in this four-star hotel, right? And I'm like, okay, this is really weird. What's happening? And then I get a call from my support worker and they said, Oh, Charlotte, look, just to let you know, because of COVID, the government's letting people take their pension money out early. You can take out $10,000. So oh I was my like, God. And okay, all you said was okay. that you needed money. And then there was money. I know, stop it. I know, stop. <laughs> and so suddenly I am in a safe space and I have 10 grand. I know. It's like, honestly, when I think about it, I'm just like, MJ, I love you so much because he's the only person who listened to me when I was like, that's what I need. So I went and got my own apartment. I got all my stuff out of storage that I'd had, you know, following me around pretty much for 10 years, but it had been in storage for two years whilst I'd had nowhere to live. Got my pet cat back and I moved into this apartment and that's when everything started to change because I was still kind of using drugs a bit. But once I got into that apartment and had everything there, and then I just had this turning point where I just woke up one morning journaling and I, I just remember thinking, I am revolting. That's what I thought. And it wasn't in a shame way. It wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so disgusting. I hate myself. It was like, ugh, I can actually see myself so objectively or subjectively. I'm not sure what the right word is, I think but I can see myself I as I am. <laughs> subjectively. I can just see myself as I am. And I am revolting and I'm treating myself in a way that is revolting and I'm better than this and I shouldn't be doing this. And I literally picked up the drugs and picked up the pipe and threw it in the bin and I just never touched them ever again. And that was, that's how I got clean. But it was crazy. From the outside, people would say, oh, we're very lucky. And I'm like, no, timing is everything. The universe will, when you are ready, doors open. That's all I can say. Wow. And also what was coming to me whilst you were talking was that Moving around with this guy, the ex-partner that wasn't very nice all the time, the moving, the moving, the moving, that was just the repetition of your childhood trauma. Yeah, like you said at the beginning of this episode, yeah, you moved and moved and moved and then you felt lonely. So the drugs provided you with the belonging and the connection in the community, even if it's in a crack den, like, you know, at least you're kind of not on your own in some kind of like fucked up way. But by that point, you were clearly starting to see like, this is not a vibe and this is like not the right kind of like connection. And so that is so incredible that actually you got that you know, you got that stability, you got that home and then you got the money. And then at that point you were like, I've got those foundational pieces of, I guess, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever it is. And then you were like, I can do this, which is so amazing. The fact that you basically did it without a 12-step program. Like, did you think about going through like the traditional recovery program or were you just like, I'm sick of this Mm -hmm. shit. Like I can do this. I think I was just sick of the shit, to be honest. I actually do remember going to NA a couple of times. And the thing that didn't resonate with me about it was the counting. It, and the very much the focus was on the addiction. 
I think that it definitely is a powerful thing that can work for a lot of people. And when I read the 12 steps, ironically, I actually went through every single step very, very quickly with the final step being you have a spiritual awakening and you feel this connection to a higher power. And I never have resonated. If you ask me right now, same with you, when did you start your podcast? I know what my clean date is, but if you ask me how many days I'm clean, I have absolutely no idea. I don't keep track. I'm not trying not to use drugs. And I found that 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 was quite a big part of that community was one day at a time, you know, I've just got to get through this day because I'm trying so hard. And props to those people that can do this with pure willpower, because that is just next level. But I could not, I, for me, I had to address the root cause of why I was an addict. And then through that, that's how I got clean. The addiction is not the problem. The addiction is the solution. Crystal meth was never the problem. Crystal meth was the solution to the problem. So until you work out what the problem is, then you're always going to need some kind of solution. And so now that I obviously know that the problem that I had was this disconnection, this loneliness, I really had no self-esteem, no self-confidence. I did not think I was good enough. Just all these things. Now I've worked on that stuff. It's like the addiction has gone and it, it does show up in much more subtle ways now. But because I've got the self-awareness, I can actually look at my behavior and go, oh, okay, I'm scrolling on Instagram like a psychopath for no reason. <laughs> I've been binge watching Netflix for so long that it's asked me if I'm still here, like what's <laughs> happening? How am I feeling? Like what emotions am I actually avoiding right now? And then I like turn it off, put the phone down, sit with myself and, and allow myself to feel because it was the avoiding the feelings that got me into the addiction in the first place. Like I don't want to feel the pain. Let yourself feel the pain. That's the way out. Oh my God. The reason that I am smiling from ear to ear is because like you just answered my next question without me even needing to ask. And you have touched on something that is so incredibly important about addiction. So first of all, you said, you know, you were able to see objectively. And I always talk about this hundred meter analogy, which is if you can take little Charlotte or little Louise and you fly yourself like out of the body and you fly a hundred meters away, you know, imagine that you're astral traveling, imagine you're flying, whatever it is that works for you. And you're able to disconnect emotionally from the situation and you can look at the situation, you can say, that's Charlotte. Charlotte lives in a crack den. Charlotte's taking crystal meth X times a week. Charlotte was just hit by her boyfriend and now she's made up with him. Like if you literally take the emotion out of it, same with the cigarettes, that's Louise. She's just got up to go to the gym. She's just filled her lungs with carbon monoxide before getting on a spinning bike to try and fill her lungs up with some more oxygen. Like that piece for me is so helpful in terms of like just viewing the situation for what it really is. Second of all, really relate to the you being sick of your shit because me with the cigarettes, one day I just woke up and I was like, I'm just fucking sick of this. It's disgusting. I wake up with headaches. Like the addiction was out, like wasn't worth it anymore. But being sick of your shit isn't enough to heal the addiction. And that is what I am so happy that you've just touched upon because otherwise everyone would just say, oh, I'm sick of this shit. If, if that was how it worked, there would be no addicts anymore. And you have touched on the most fundamentally important thing. It's healing from the pain underneath the addiction. And Gabor Mate always says addiction is just a response to human suffering. You know, it's an attempt to escape the suffering. Yes, I understand that there are some genetic drivers behind it, but addiction is not this genetic predisposition that you are destined to. It is a cocktail of many different things. And I'd love to understand, you know, how did you start to work out what the real wounds were underneath this? Did you go to therapy? How did you know where to go next to get you to the root that would mean you could actually heal the addiction rather than, like you said, saying I'm sick of this. And then two days later, going back into the cycle. So the whole time I was an addict, I was constantly, and I guess it's just the way my mind works. I always was asking why the whole time, why would I be in a relationship with someone that's treating me like that? Why this? Why that? Why? Why? Like constantly, why? I need to know why. And, but the journaling, I was always asking myself, but why, but why, but why? And I would make connections and patterns and how, when was the first time I felt like this? Even th back through into childhood, you know, when was the first time I let a guy treat me like shit? When did I stop saying I deserve better than that and just accept it as that's what it is? 
it doesn't happen overnight. You're not you're not born as a baby and think that you deserve to be treated like shit. It's built into you. Like as you grow up, you slowly kind of get these beliefs. And I looked into it, and you know, I could I could actually find specific moments in my childhood or teenage years that contributed to these things that had slowly built up. The trouble is, for a lot of people, when they get sick of their shit, instead of going right, I'm sick of my shit, right but I'm good enough to get out of it. They go, I'm sick of my shit. God, I'm such a piece of shit. And then they start getting into this whole shaming cycle of just, oh, I'm so shit. I'm the worst person ever. Why am I like this? And that, the person who thinks they're a piece of shit, well, they're probably not going to get clean. You know, if you think that you are the worst person in the world and you're so shit, well, that, like, how is how are you going to manage to get clean? And I, I remember uh, that was, it was funny, like when I actually got clean and I don't know where it came from. I wasn't looking at anything on YouTube. I wasn't reading books about anything. I started writing on my mirrors, I love you all around the apartment. And when I woke up, the first thing that I would see was, I love you every morning, blink my eyes open. That was the first thought, I love you. And it was on the mirror. And every day, like I was stuck in the house in lockdown, I was just walking around all these mirrors and being like, I love you, I love you all day. And it was, and that's when I started to become aware of this voice in my head. Like I dropped something on the floor and the voice is saying, God, you're a fucking stupid idiot. I would actually go, no, I'm not. And I, I didn't realize that was the voice in my head. And, and that was massive for me, becoming aware of the voice in my head and actually standing up to it and talking back to it, sometimes out loud. <laughs> like a crazy person. (laughs) No, I'm not a piece of shit. I'm actually fucking amazing. But you don't always believe it at first, but you have to actually take the time and the effort to reprogram those thoughts, catch them when they happen and reprogram them with what you want to actually think. And eventually it becomes like wired into your brain and you start to think those things naturally. I think I said to you last time we spoke, I I am my biggest cheerleader. (laughs) Like I just, you know, it's like verging on, it's not, but it was maybe about then verging on arrogance. (laughs) I was just so like, you are so amazing. Like you can do anything and you have to, you have to believe in yourself and, and talk to yourself like you would a friend or a sister or a brother. Yeah. And it's so hard to be your biggest cheerleader when we're grown up, you know, we all grow up in families being told not to cry, not to make so much noise, like just sit down and just do this and do that. And it's really interesting you say that because I personally haven't been the biggest fan of affirmations in my time because I've always felt like, oh, they just work on that 5% of the conscious mind rather than the 95% of the subconscious. But we've done an episode with a neuroscientist, which hasn't come out just yet. It'll come out in a little bit. And she says the first thing she does every single day is looks in the mirror, smiles in the mirror and gives herself a high five and is basically like, morning, I love you. And that's literally what you did from a neuroscience perspective, like you rewired your own brain. I also just want to say to anyone listening that there's this really, really important ski run analogy that I learned in therapy, which was so important for me, where my therapist explained to me, and this was in my context of my health anxiety, but it's whatever, it applies to anything. Imagine you go skiing, right? You go to Val d'Isere, you go to Whistler, wherever. There are the ski runs. There are 100,000 people going down those ski runs. They are thick. They are carved out. They are your thoughts. You can go off piste, but there's no path there. But if one person goes off piste and then another person goes off piste and then 10 more people goes off piste, you build a new neural pathway. And that is when people say, oh, I rewired my my brain, I rewired my nervous system. People don't really understand what that means. That's what Charlotte did. She built new neural pathways with different beliefs that ultimately became stronger than her original beliefs. And that's why she put so much thought and so much effort into them that she said it verged on arrogance. But that's kind of what you need to do and that you have to do. And I know also that you came back to the UK at some point and the next stage of your recovery was inside of your family unit. Now, let me tell you, as someone that's been home for two weeks, And I've had five days of physical pain and about 700 family arguments, despite the fact that we all love each other so much. I think of Charlotte all the time. And I think, how the fuck did a drug addict stay clean back in her family home? Because if we take it back to the ski slope analogy, as soon as you're back in your family home, you go straight back to the original wirings. And it is so hard to battle and build anything new when you are in a family unit that is just like so stuck in their ways. So tell me about that part of the journey? Like how, you know, how did you get back to the UK? But probably more importantly, how was it when you got back to the UK? 
Oh, Louise, you know, it's actually so amazing and validating (laughs) to hear what you're saying right now, because I remember when I first got home and I just used to get all these messages from people saying, oh, it must be so good to be back with your family. And I was like, are you actually having a fucking laugh? Like (laughs) I, I love my family, right? But I am locked in a house after having just gotten clean from crystal meth and having lived on the other side of the world for 10 years. And I was suddenly locked in a house with my parents. It was intense, a lot. I would say it took a good year and a half for us to to kind of find a bit of a groove. I've been home three years now, still living at the parents, hence you can see this beautiful pink wall behind me, not my first (laughs) choice of colour scheme. (laughs) Um, It's lovely. But I, yeah, I've been home about three years now and now I have a beautiful relationship with my parents and I actually can see the healing in me rippling out through them. My dad's even become affectionate, hugs me, weird, you know, it's like he's not affectionate and he started to become really just very, very much a warmer and kinder and loving, which I never had from him when I was growing up. I've still got work to do because you saying that makes me feel uncomfortable in my body. Like the thought of like, <laughs> oh, like daughter, daddy hugs. Like, oh, that still brings me some kind of like, oh, no, no, no. We obviously still have moments where we trigger each other. Of course we do with family. But now what happens, I've noticed I get triggered and my immediate reaction when I get triggered by my dad is usually to cry and walk away. That's what I always do. But now what I've noticed what happens is after that happens, he actually comes and finds me and says, I just want to check if we're okay. And then we have, and then we have a talk. I know this is crazy. We have a talk about what's happened and I'll say how I felt. And then he'll say how he felt very like logically and, and unemotionally, but it's so beautiful. I could never have imagined having those conversations with my father in my life, to be honest. And so it, although it has been an, at times hell on earth, I would say that coming home and moving in with my parents was way harder than getting clean, way harder than getting clean. Getting clean was like the easy part. The hard work was when I came home and, you know, yeah, being around the people that really fucking trigger you and get under your skin, even though you love them so much. But yeah, it's we're in such a good place now. And I know that that is the reason that I did get locked into a house with them. Sometimes you have to accept that you are always in the place that you're meant to be. Everything happens when it's meant to happen. And yeah, everything falls into place. And, and I know that I can leave this house now knowing that, that I've healed my relationship with my parents and that I just love them so much, which I did not have before. That is so beautiful. And despite my slightly immature reaction of being like, oh, physical touch from my father, I actually feel the same way. You know, me and my father are closer than we've ever been and he will hug me too. And sometimes he'll bring me a coffee and same, like it will still be quite logical and like rational when we, when we have conversations and that's a lot easier now. I don't, you know, cry and explode like I used to. I I think that most of all, what I'm hearing from you is that you feel, or both of us feel actually more welcomed into the family unit. Like when we walk off, we get followed rather than we would walk off as a kid and lock ourselves in our room and go on MSN or all these things that would just isolate ourselves further, even though we felt connected through MSN or whatever. Actually, we felt rejected from the family unit. So that's so beautiful. And like, it's so incredible to hear how far you have come on that journey. I guess what I want to ask you is, do you ever have days? I mean, this shows like my ignorance. I don't even know if you you smoke crystal meth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You smoke it through a glass pipe. Okay. So do you ever have moments where you're like, fuck, I just want to smoke some ice or whatever? Because for me, as someone that's five years sober, most of the time, and probably haven't smoked cigarettes for like four years, I actually have no idea that could be a lie, but basically quite a long time. And I'm generally, I'm like, no, I'm so good. I'm so good. But there will be some days when I'm like, fuck, I would fucking love a cigarette. But I now with self-compassion just understand that there is something going on inside my nervous system that is desperate for release, desperate for some kind of feeling or escape. Is that something or a journey that you've gone on? Do you ever have cravings for drugs or alcohol? And how are you dealing with that? Or do you feel like you've come pretty full circle on learning to release those cravings through your nervous system in other ways? Yeah. So weirdly, since I've been back, I've never, I've never had cravings, which is really interesting. I think I just was so done that I just, it was, it was almost like a switch just went in my brain and I was like, I just don't want that anymore. Never had cravings. 
but then the uncomfortable emotions and the needing to soothe them has come up. So I don't know if you have the same thing. I think it's more association, I suppose, really. So especially with alcohol, God, you know, it's like drummed into us since we're children. Even if you just watch television, if you're happy, you drink. If you're sad, you drink. If someone's born, you drink. If someone dies, you drink. If it's a wedding, you drink. Like everyone drinks for every single occasion in the UK. And I mean, probably across the world, but definitely I noticed there's a huge culture in the UK. So sometimes there's that, you know, sometimes when it's a really nice sunny day, I occasionally have the thought, oh, I'd really love to go and have a cocktail somewhere. And I'm like, no, I actually wouldn't. But you just kind of associate it with the feeling of the pub garden or whatever you're doing, you know, oh, it's summer. Yeah, let's sit in the pub. So sometimes that, but it's more a thought rather than an actual craving. But I would, I experience that more with alcohol than with drugs because I never took drugs in the UK. So I have no association with any environment in the UK or any human being that lives here. I don't associate this country with drugs, which I think is a really good thing, to be honest. Yeah. And again, that's just the ski slope analogy, isn't it? You know, all the thoughts and feelings and cravings were attached to specific neural pathways, which were built in specific places. That is so fascinating. And yeah, I sometimes have that, like, it's more for the cigarettes for me, which is so weird because they are like disgusting. Like, you know, anyone listening that smokes, I'm not judging you. I did it for a decade, but like, it is like objectively a disgusting habit. And people would used to say to me, like, that's a disgusting habit. And I'd be like, oh, fuck you. Like, no, it's not. Like, I love it. Like, I literally loved smoking, which is so crazy because it is like so disgusting. And like, (laughs) I love it. Give it to me. (laughs) Literally like, oh, I love it. Like, oh, walking down the street. Like, oh yeah. Like literally (laughs) so wild. That shows how like addictions are just working on our neurotransmitters that it can really feel so good when it is objectively so disgusting. Like let's do the hundred meter analogy. Oh, Louise is smoking 75 carcinogens (laughs) and 700 chemicals. (laughs) And she loves it. (laughs) And she loves it. And the inside of her lungs are black and she loves it. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> that is so funny. So yeah, it's definitely connected to the neural wiring and the neural pathways and also again just like for me I always used to smoke when I ran my marketing agency and it was so fucking stressful because me and my business partner would go outside, we would smoke and we would talk about the problems in the business. So it was like the release outside of the office where the employees weren't. So it's always like, oh What do I need a release from when I want to smoke that cigarette? So I think that's so important. Now, as we come to wrap up, I'd love to understand like what your life looks like today and what kind of like, I guess like actionable tips and tricks and tools did you start to use? Because I know you're great at yogaring, not a word, and like meditating, that is a word. And, you know, I've seen more and more recently you're posting about nervous system regulation, which is so important. I'd love to know what life looks like for you today? Okay. So what does life look like for me at the moment? I would say when I first got back, I wanted to fast forward to where I am now. And I also wanted to do all the things I wanted to help everyone. I wanted to change everyone's lives. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. But I, you know, I, I dove into things like I became a Reiki master. Then I, I went in and did all the Christianity stuff and that kind of consumed me for eight or nine months. I was just trying so hard. I think when I got home to really work out who I was, where I belonged, that was a big thing. And I think that I was so trying to find where I belonged that I would try and mold myself into all the people that I met. Whereas now I'm at a point where I am just me and I'm comfortable where I'm at. So very slowly I got back into working life and I've now got a full-time job where I actually work from home. And I think I'm actually just at a point where I'm accepting that for right now and where I'm at right now, this is the perfect place to be. Just in an environment with other human beings doing the day-to-day life of just working, living, hanging out with each other, talking crap in the office, just normal life, which I absolutely never thought I would say, because I always thought I want to be doing all the crazy stuff. And I'm not saying this is where I'm going to end up forever. And I absolutely don't think it is. I think that there's other things that I want to do, but at this moment in time, it's been so good for me to just reintegrate and just be normal. 
just be normal. And there's nothing wrong with being normal. And, you know, I I think when I came back, I felt quite lonely because I thought I've done all this work and I want to do more, but where are the fucking people that are doing it? You know, I'm like going down the road and I'm just meeting so-and-so and and they're just talking about the weather. And I used to get really annoyed about it. I was like, Mm. like, I just want to have deep conversations with people. I'm fed up of this fucking just like shallow surface bullshit. But actually what I've come to realize is that connection is connection. And it doesn't matter if it's waving to your postman every morning, going down and saying hello to the person that works on the gym reception, the person you pass on the street each morning on your run, whatever it is, those tiny little micro moments of just like, hello, hi, how are you? They're actually human connection too. And they actually can fill your cup. So yes, you do need the deep and meaningful relationships as well, but not every single connection you have has to be that way. I think what's so beautiful as well is that, you know, we talk about how our nervous system stays close to what's familiar, even if it is chaotic and stressful for us. So your nervous system stayed close to moving around all the time and moving to the other side of the world and moving house every two weeks. Like you couldn't get more of an obvious reflection of your nervous system being okay in a totally dysregulated state, changing constantly. And so your healing is learning to nurture a nervous system that can tolerate stability. And that's probably a sign of your healing, which is I'm here, I have a job, I'm waving at the postman and I work nine to five, whatever it is, and I'm happy. That is a sign of your healing because healing isn't just stopping taking the drugs, right? It's about building a life that you don't need to escape from. And I think one of the things that I'm really working on at the moment is just having more fun. Even when I'm using my pain for a purpose, I'm like, I don't want to get lost in doing the work. You don't want to get lost in doing the work. Like you said, it can become so overwhelming that whenever someone can't talk to you on a deep level or isn't aware of what they've gone through, we're like, ooh, so they're so unself aware. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's ridiculous because we used to be like that. That used to be us. We used to be in the club. I remember one time going to a club with you and I was so drunk, I vomited on your boyfriend. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) I I did a shot and I threw up on him. That was how drunk I was. That is hilarious. I actually have no idea about anything. So we used to be that girl. Like if someone came up to us and was like, oh, tell me about your childhood trauma. You'd be like, what? Like I'm busy being drunk and fucking like grinding on someone that's not my boyfriend. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Literally. And that is like the final point. That was us. That was, that literally was us. And I, I also think that that's the final part of today's episode is that like you and I have always been very men oriented, like very much like if they pick me and they love me and choose me, everything's fine. If I look cute and if I look sexy and if I look good, everything will be fine. I think what's so beautiful is that like both you and I have learned to build a connection with ourselves. And having the willingness to have uncomfortable conversations with each other where you can literally sit down and say, oh my goodness, like what you just said has really freaked me out. And then the other person going, that's okay. Do you need space? What do you need right now? Do you need advice? Do you need space? Do you need a hug? Like, what is it? And I think that people are becoming so much more like that. And I actually had a moment this morning and I thought of you because I thought, oh, you'll be so proud of me. But I thought I've gotten to a point now with men because I'm single and I've been single for five years, which I 100% needed just to recalibrate. (laughs) But I, yeah, I am dating and I'm at a point now where if someone is flaky and kind of that avoidant style of attachment that you and I just loved so much in the past, Mm. I'm now turned off by that. Even though it still activates me because I've got that anxious attachment style, it still activates me. And I'm like, but I'm like, and then I go, but actually that's just actually quite gross. And I just don't want it. Whereas before I used to run towards it. And I I remember I was thinking about it this morning and I thought, Louise will be so proud of me that I now I'm like, no, thank you. That's not for me. I literally am so proud of you. And also one of the therapists on this podcast said, one day you won't even become nonchalant to the avoidant attachment style, you know, and I don't ever want to demonize the avoidant attachment style, but I think for for Charlotte and I, it has caused us so much pain because we have run towards people that were running away from us. And so we just kept running. So it's not, we're not demonizing the avoidantly attached. We're just demonizing the entire dynamic and us running towards them for so long. And the therapist said at some point, not only will you become nonchalant towards it, but you'll actually become turned off by it and you'll be like, ooh, that's kind of gross. And I remember when she told me that like two years ago, I was like, I literally will never be that person. And now I am. Like if I was to ever be single again, I'd be like, no, that doesn't feel good. And I, I'm not, that's not attractive to me. And I'm not interested in that. And it sounds like 
you are at that point as well. So I am not only am proud of you, I'm fucking proud of both of us for doing the work. But most of all, I am proud of you because you have overcome a humongous mountain. I mean, humongous. Actually, my Mexican boyfriend loves that word. He's like, that's the weirdest <laughs> British word I've ever heard. And he always says, humongous. And I'm like, yes, babe, well done. <laughs> but, Good breakup. But you have come over a humongous mountain. And if someone is listening to this and they're realizing that they are an addict or they have been in the cycles that you've been, you know, talking about today, what should they do? The second question is, if you love someone who is an addict, what should you do? So let's start with the, for the people listening that relate to your story. Okay. So what should you do if you feel like you're going down that slippery slope? I think what you should do is don't be afraid to admit that that's what's happening. I knew I had this little voice at the back of my mind that was going, Charlotte, you know, this isn't really quite right. What are you doing? I knew every time, every step I knew, I knew, I knew. I just, I just didn't want to admit it for a long time that I needed help. And I think that also probably stems from things in childhood where, you know, you and I being these sort of independent children adult children looking after younger siblings or whatever, and having this kind of weight of responsibility on our shoulders and this, this thing of I'm perfect. I have to be perfect because if I'm not perfect, you know, I won't be loved. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be good all the time. Good enough. And it was, it was admitting I need help. And I still struggle with asking people for help, obviously not with things like that, but, you know, actually saying, can you help me to someone? Even like saying that in my body feels a bit weird. I don't like the thought of of having mm. to ask someone for help. And I think that's what it is. It's it's basically, if you're listening to this and you're struggling, it's okay to struggle. It is human. And human beings, we go through situations where we don't have all the answers or we might do something that's destructive because that's all we know. We might self-soothe in a way that is not going to be the best way for us. And that's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. Admit that what you're doing is actually harming you more than what you could be doing and go and speak to someone about it. And it is difficult because if you can find a therapist that you actually get on with, then that's perfect. But obviously some people go into therapy and and maybe the therapist that they find isn't the right one to start with. So it is kind of a case of finding someone that you trust and that it's a safe space and that you feel like you can be very open. But there is nothing wrong with going to find someone and saying, I think I've got a problem and I, I want to talk about it and I want to work out why this is happening. And they won't judge you. And it, and it will help. But it's that feeling of admitting that, oh my God, I need help. It's a, it's a hard one. But I think that's, if I had been able to do that, then maybe my story would have turned out a little bit differently. Yeah, that's so special. Thank you. I think none of us want to admit that we need help. Or, well, maybe actually people do. Maybe you're right. It's just you and I that are like, you know, it's like, nope, we'll do everything ourselves, like father wound become like, we'll do the feminine and the masculine and all of the doing and all the logical and all the emotional. But I do just want to ask you that other question before we finish. Yes, and people yes. are like, hey, she didn't ask the second part, <laughs> answer the second part of the question. Okay. Well, yeah. What can you do to help someone? I mean, what can you do to help someone? That was it, wasn't it? What can you do to help someone who's all going through addiction and how can you support them? For me as an addict, the number one thing was that no one would listen to me. And that was like a big one for me. It was like, I felt as though, everyone was trying to tell me what to do, tell me what I needed to do. And no one was listening. And I'm not saying that what they wanted me to do wouldn't have helped, like going to rehab and things like that. Of course, that would have helped me had I been ready to go to rehab, which I actually wasn't when they were trying to get me to go. But it's just actually remembering that an addict is a human being and somebody who probably not long ago was just like you. No one who is on the streets and homeless and a drug addict started off that way. They started off somewhere else and that's what ended up happening. And there is a person in there. And if you can sit with that person and actually ask them, I mean, it obviously depends on the person and where they're at in their journey, but ask them like, how are you? And like, how are you feeling? What do you think you need? Do you even want to get better? Because if they don't want to, you can't help them. And that's the big thing. And if they say they don't want it, 
you actually have to kind of just let them get on with it, which is heartbreaking, but you can't do it for them. And I think that was the thing that I found was that everyone wanted to do it for me. No one was listening to me. No one was listening to me saying, I'm not ready. If you send me to rehab, yeah, fine, send me to rehab. I'll be back doing this in a couple of months. I I just think that that's the most important thing. And also just knowing that the, the best thing that you can do is really be there for them, but know that they're probably going to not be there consistently themselves. But when they do come to you, just be a safe space that listens and maybe just don't even try to give them advice. Just listen. Because a lot of the time, I think that's what it is. Everyone wants to fix an addict, but actually a lot of the time, what they really need is someone to just listen to them. Oh my goodness. This is the perfect end for today's episode because my mom, so my mom knows Charlotte and I think you've met before. I don't really remember. She doesn't know that I'm recording with Charlotte today. I just said, oh, I have a recording. And so it just came to me whilst you were talking about that, that this morning, whilst we were walking the dog together, talk about synchronicities, talk about the universe literally communicating with us, with both of us. I honestly don't know how we got onto the topic of a homeless man. Like we weren't talking about homelessness. We weren't talking about drug addiction. We weren't talking about anything. And she said that there was a guy somewhere recently and his sign that he had in front of him said homeless and lonely. And that is just like literally, yeah, I know, but that (laughs) is so heartbreaking. I know. And she said she stopped and she spoke with him and she said, do you want Mm -hmm. anything? And he didn't, he didn't want anything. He just wanted to speak to my mom. And I always make a really conscious effort to always say hi to homeless people when I'm walking past them. And, you know, it's so easy just to look up and just keep walking. And I think what we're learning from today is that the vast majority of the people, of the people on the streets, not all, I really understand that there's a lot of people as well that live on the streets who are not addicts, but there will be some that are battling addiction. And I think one thing that we've learned today is that one of the root causes of addiction is not only trauma, childhood trauma and adulthood trauma, but actually loneliness. Final question, would you take it back? Would you take the journey back? It's the best thing that ever happened to me, which I know sounds crazy. And like you said, I would not wish it on anyone, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It's the way that I came home to myself, which I know sounds really cheesy, but it is. (laughs) Well, that's actually one of our taglines at Open House. So if it's cheesy, then we're all here for it. Yeah, I think... (laughs) I think our I think our podcast intro says we're here to help you come home to yourself. But that's the truth. We're also oh, disconnected okay. like from ourselves. So there we go. Yeah. Mic drop. Mm-hmm. That's the final synchronicity of today's episode. Like you just <laughs> literally hit us with the open house tagline, Aww. like as we finished. But yeah, now is the time to wrap up. And I think I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for sharing your journey. I've had goosebumps for at least 50% of the episodes. You are strong. You are incredible. You are inspirational. And you are my friend. And I am so proud to call you my friend. I'm so proud to be able to share your story on this podcast. And, you know, I'm so happy to have you here. (laughs) Tell tell everyone. the feelings. I'm like, oh my God, I love you so much. And everything you just said back to you. I'm so proud of you as well, because I can't believe that three years ago when I was getting clean, I heard your first episode of Open House and now you're just smashing it. And I'm so proud of you and just what you've built over the last few years. It's fucking amazing. So I hope you're proud of yourself too. Thank you. I find it hard to be (laughs) proud of myself. And when people are like, yeah, I'm so proud of you. I'm like, oh, it's okay. You don't need to be proud of me. Like it's fine. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that moment and say thank you so much. And before we jump off, your all your details are going to be linked in the show notes, but just tell everyone where they can find you and what social platforms you're on. Yeah. So Instagram is basically the only platform I use. I am Charlotte Jackson. And I also actually have started a little podcast of my own. So if anyone's interested in me delving a little deeper into the things that I've gone through, I share that as well. So there's a link to that through Instagram. If anyone oh my gosh, I didn't know that. That's so yeah. amazing. I'm going to have to definitely check that out. We will link that in the show notes as well. And other than that, thank you so much. I am sure we will have you back on here one day soon. And most of all, for the thousandth time, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I love you so much. I love you too. Bye.